I have come here to chew bubblegum and kick ass. And I'm all out of bubblegum. Welcome to Spoiler Alert, episode 88 for September 2020. Crazy 88s. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm Duncan. And I'm Simon. And 1988 was a big year for action. Not much bigger than Action Jackson, Bloodsport, Rambo 3, Oof. Die Hard. Comedy-wise, we had Beetlejuice, Coming to America, A Fish Called Wanda, Midnight Run, Naked Gun, Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. The drama was provided by The Last Temptation of Christ, Unbearable Lightness of Being, Eight Men Out, which I actually really liked, Mississippi Burning, and Oliver Stone's Talk Radio. The seminal manga feature, Akira, Peter Greenaway's Drowning by Numbers, Errol Morris, literally life-saving documentary, The Thin Blue Line, which helped clear a man from death row. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of our favorites, The Decline of Western Civilization to the Metal Years. Oh, so great. <laughs> And of course, who could forget, Taffin. <laughs> Maybe you shouldn't, shouldn't be, be living, living here. Ah, <laughs> oh, so good. You know, sometimes when we do these, I'm surprised by what films come out in the same year as other films. Mm-hmm. Like Die Hard is such a landmark action film, like mm-hmm. it's changed action. And I find it weird to think it came out the same year as uh, Rambo 3, which is essentially just tired, you know? <laughs> Yes, yeah. the last. It feels like the last gasp, even though it was not yeah. of a franchise. That's right. Um, yeah, that's staggering to me. It was last and, gasp for a while, I guess. Yeah, and also I would have thought if Akira came out much later too, because it, yeah. it, it doesn't feel that old to me. It feels, you know. Yeah, I I, I was quite late to Akira. I think it was ninety one or ninety two. Maybe sure, probably for me as well. Yeah, yeah. one of those ones that really found its uh, audience on VHS, obviously. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Mm. Uh, look, 88 was an odd year for horror, almost as if the cycle of great fran- uh, great films and strongish franchises that got us through the 80s was running out of steam. Instead, we got some comic horrors, some weakening sequels, and some really just plain bad films. Uh, so perhaps a film with the longest legs and the antagonist with the shortest legs to come out of 88 was Child's Play, a decent thriller that kept, the, that kept tuning out sequels, becoming notorious when the third entry was erroneously linked to a, a brutal murder in the UK. Eventually becoming good again with the hilarious Bride of Chucky, which I love, uh, in 98, and then getting eventually rebooted, and this year getting a TV series. I mean, that's a, that's a decent run, eh? Yeah. Elsewhere, FX guru Stan Winston directed a good low-budget horror with a great monster in Pumpkinhead, mm-hmm. and lesser but still enjoyable horror. The Blob remake was a heck of a lot of fun. Ken Russell's The Lair of the White Worm was a gleeful horror romp, and while it was marred by a silly last act, I'll always have a lot of... A lot of affection for Wes Craven's The Serpent and the Rainbow. Oh, yeah. And then there's all the sequels. Uh, Halloween 4 and The Nightmare on Elm Street 4 were decent entries. Much better than Friday 13th Part 7, Poltergeist 3, <laughs> and the practically unwatchably silly The Return of the Living Dead Part 2. <laughs> I hated that film. I don't even really, I don't know if I've ever seen it. Oh, that. man. There's really only a handful of horror entries worth discussing from here on. Duncan has already shared his thoughts on the unforgettable brain damage. But I was also a fan of the ludicrously inventive Killer Clowns from Outer Space, which has carved out a well-deserved cult following. And naturally, I cannot go past Killer Cat hiding inside a regular cat, hiding on a boat, (laughs) (laughs) flick, the uninvited 
Surely one of the best Halloween movie night films I've ever forced anyone to watch. Uh, I'm eternally grateful that you forced me to watch that. That's become a, a favourite in our household. Yeah. Whenever we see a, a kind of a strange cat, we always think the uninvited. <laughs> the uninvited. <laughs> yeah. It's not over. <laughs> if I ever see a cat on a boat, I'm just, yeah, I'll, I'll just be like, no, I think I'll take, the, water, swim. I'll take yeah. the next one. <laughs> yeah. So really, there's only one film to talk about here. David Cronenberg's exquisite thriller, Dead Ringers with its superb performance by Jeremy Irons as twin surgeons descending into madness. But I assumed that you would talk about that one, Duncan, so I've decided instead to discuss <laughs> another Canadian cult horror, Pin. All right. One part psycho and one part that excellent possessed ventriloquist doll sequence from the classic Dead of Night. Pin is a real Canuck cult oddity with a weird psychosexual tension, delving into themes of entitlement, possessiveness and sexual fears. So actually probably a good film to bring up alongside Dead Ringers. Yeah. It's creepy as opposed to scary and does a great job of making you wonder if the doll is possessed or if it's all in the minds of the main characters. It's been a long time since I've watched Pin, but just talking about it makes me want to hunt down a copy because I imagine it's actually really difficult to find nowadays. It feels like one of those films that's probably, mm. you know, slipped through the cracks a little bit. Yeah, probably. Well, it's like you said, uh, Dead Ringers has never Dead been Ringers, released as yeah. well, which is uh, outlandish. Yeah, Dead Ringers is the one, uh, prob- probably the film I want most in the library that I know I'm not going to get, if you know what yeah. I mean. Yeah. Yeah, I keep ever since you told me that, I was quite shocked and surprised, and I always keep trying to look out for it. And I know it's never been released, but yeah, you know, um, it's funny with Dead Ringers as well because a lot of people say that that was why Jeremy Irons won the next year. Yeah, um, was kind of the Academy going, you know what, that Dead Ringers was really good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, um, what have you been watching since we last? Uh, quite, yeah, a bit, but um, watched a little bit, but nothing that's really kind of leapt out at me. Um, and I, look, I'm really late to this party, but I, but the one that um, kind of stuck with me, and I just recently watched, was Dawn of the Planet of the Apes. Oh yeah, yeah, and um, it, it begins talking about like this pandemic that's mm. slowly killing off um, humanity and yeah. spread through, uh, you know, people coughing and all this kind of stuff. So it was a bit like, whoa, it's mm-hmm. a bit intense. Um, and and I'm actually slowly working my way through the series, uh, the the you know the reboot series essentially, uh, and I'm not hunting them out. I'm just waiting till they turn up on Sky and watching them or or on streaming service. And um, I've I've actually really enjoyed the restraint and thoughtfulness put into the two entries I've seen. Uh, I mean, Andy Circus's rightfully celebrated motion capture work is amazing. It really is, and and there's this kind of inevitability of war between humans and apes is ever-present despite the best efforts of kind of heroes on both sides. Uh, the conflict cannot be avoided because of the destructive nature of humans and, and maybe just animals in general. Mm. Um, I've grown an appreciation for these kinds of films that don't wink at the audience or have meta-commentary woven into it. They, they're earnest without being sentimental and I find it commands attention mm. more than a series of like two cool dialogue you might get in other franchises like Alien or Predators that have kind of devolved into lately, mm. it feels. And um, there's something to be said for that. Like, it's a really straightforward. Um, it, it's it's not overly violent. There's not that many action set pieces. But there's this rising tension in both of the mm. films where, um, despite the best efforts of people, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. despite the best efforts of people, it's not so much any one villain, but it's just kind of... Nature, but so yeah, I'm really looking forward to seeing the uh, the third one. Oh right, yeah, cool, cool. I haven't seen this one, but I have seen the third one. It's the only one I've seen. Right, yeah. Um, and uh, I enjoyed it a heck of a lot. Actually, I thought it was really, really quite beautiful. Cool. And, and and for the same reasons that you're you're talking about, really. Yeah. It was just felt like a smart film. Yeah. You know, that's right. Um, it, it, 
you know, in a great way, like it was basically a franchise blockbuster, which... Yeah, that's the other encouraging thing about it, yeah. isn't it? It's not... It, I guess it's an outlier in, in its kind of intention or, like I say, its tone. Mm. But um, the fact that it has, you know, gripped audiences mm. and that it is commercially successful is actually really uh, encouraging and refreshing. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Mm. Cool. And what have you been watching? Well, I've watched some films since we last recorded uh, this podcast, but more importantly, I've watched a lot of films from one franchise, Bond, James Bond. <laughs> what? What, so, what, yeah. kind of, what kind of idiot would watch a whole bunch of James Bond films? Oh, yeah. Saturday nights have become Bond night at Lambert Manor uh, as my wife and I work our way through the series. Our original plan was to, keep, was to kind of leap around the entries from Connery to Dalton and more to Brosnan in a fairly arbitrary manner, but for various reasons, we found ourselves watching more and more <laughs> with a couple of Conneries thrown in for good measure. And I've discovered a few things about my double uh, O tastes in the process. <laughs> Firstly, I do like a good villain. Uh, for instance, View to a Killer and Man with a Golden Gun get significant bumps for me by having Christopher's Walken and Lee as the big bads. Even though these films are clearly not without their flaws, I've got to say. Uh, secondly, I like it when Bond does some secret agent detecting stuff. I'm sure gadgets are fine, but nothing beats watching them figure stuff out. But my caveat to that is I dig it when goofiness and gadgets run wild as well. I mean, I love Moonraker. <laughs> I remember looking at my wife at one point during Moonraker and saying, this is nuts. They haven't even got to space. <laughs> <laughs> what a film. And finally, I really do enjoy Roger Moore. Though the strangest part of watching his run out of order in the way we have is popping in a DVD and then five minutes later messaging my co-host here to say, he looks so young, <laughs> because Roger Moore was maybe 47 at that time. <laughs> and then a week later, messaging say, damn, he looks old, because I'm watching For Your Eyes Only, and Moore is now like 54, <laughs> and looking good for his age, but beside his co-star, who's 30 years younger than him, it's just, yeah, you know. It's 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 crazy. Uh, for Your Eyes Only has, um, they kind of go out of their way, and For Your Eyes Only, you know, there's the the young woman who's a uh, young ice skater who's yeah, yeah. got a real crush on him and they kind of they, they kind of infantilize it in some way and make yeah, it look yeah, like make really it look even younger even maybe. younger and stuff and um and he's all like oh no I possibly I couldn't possibly yeah. um but then he goes off at the end you know with Carol Bouquet yeah well they were this basically the same age yeah yeah there's a, a very legendary story from Roger Moore where he was sitting down on the set of view to a kill yeah. and um uh, Tony Roberts mother turned up on set and um he was older than she was, uh, and so that was his co-star's mother. He was older than her. He thought, maybe it's time. Maybe to. it's time. <laughs> yeah. And uh, actually, the funny thing about uh, For Your Eyes Only, the first thing that I noticed is, what, what, like, 45 minutes, and it's like, he has not had sex in this film, which <laughs> seems rem remarkable to me, because in every other uh, of the more films, it's like, there would have been about two encounters by now. You yeah. know, he's really holding off. Yeah, I yeah. I felt bad for him, you know? <laughs> um, and to have him actually, like, decline... A proposal it seemed remarkable. I mean, I hadn't seen that yeah. know, from from a more, but um, I think I remember saying to you, "There's a scene where he's um, uh, the, the scuba diving, yeah. and, and they have a shot of her, and she looks angelic, and then yeah. they cut to him, so craggy, yeah. so craggy that <laughs> I, I laughed out loud. I couldn't help it. That's great. Do you know yeah. the um, do you know the that shot? Uh, apparently, she had a like a sinus infection, oh, um, right. or, or like a sinus thing, and she couldn't go underwater. So those shots of her close up underwater are not actually underwater. No. Yeah, they actually just blew um, 
uh, fans at her, bathed yeah. it in blue, bathed it light, blue light, and then just put bubbles in there. Yeah, Which folks, as you're discovering, I'm I'm kind of new to this. <laughs> I, this is like I have seen Bond films before. I'm sure. not going to kid you about that. But actually, this level and going in, intending to watch them all, going is, in is deep, a bit new, and clearly I'm, I'm talking. About, I'm learning at the feet of the master here. <laughs> um, yeah, so look, we've got one more more to go. And then we're going to get ready to maybe return to the Connery, or as I said earlier, try some sweet Lazenby action if I can. <laughs> uh, either way, I'm enjoying my Bonscapade. Nice, nice. That's great. Yeah, we'll, we'll have to compare notes. Maybe we can come back and do another episode and talk about it and do a bit of ranking or something. Sure. In greater yeah, because that's the other thing. Uh, uh, Duncan encouraged me to rank them, so I've started <laughs> ranking. Yeah, I mean, you know, you've got like 50 years of, over 50 years of Bond and, yeah. and over, you know, what, like 24, 25 films mm. now. So, yeah, ranking comes with the territory. But, um, yeah, I'm really curious. I haven't sh- shared my rankings, but um, no. I'm, I'm really looking forward to Maybe we can save that for a podcast. Yeah. Although, as I said, the, the difficulty, because we did uh, the Star Wars prequels before mm. and we ranked them, it's a lot easier when you're only talking, you know, I mean, 11 films now, I guess, which yeah. is a lot, but still in comparison. Yeah, know? that's right. Yeah. Yeah. And um, I guess because I'm so familiar with Star Wars, it's quite easy to think about their placement, and I've probably watched them a number of times. Yeah. I'm not going to return and watch these films again immediately right. afterwards to recheck my rankings, you know? Unlike me. Yeah, unlike <laughs> yeah. So, so some of the decisions are going, to be, are going to seem a little bit off, I think. I'm going to be like, yeah. am I sure I should have ranked it that high? Yeah. You know? Oh, that's, that's part of the joy of it. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. yeah. James Bond. You appear with a tedious inevitability. <laughs> Of an unloved season. So what a year, eh? The film festival came and went with lots of, uh, with lots that you could watch online and some that you could see in cinemas. But as much as I love supporting the festival, and as much as we've always gone uh, out of our way in previous years to celebrate it, mm-hmm. uh, review festival films, this was a different event. I didn't see any festival films with an audience. In fact, since the first lockdown, I've only seen one film in a theatre. James Whale's 1931 Frankenstein. So, yeah. And I think more than anything, more than the biggest blockbuster or the most hype new release, festival screenings feel like they need audiences. Fellow film fans to laugh or to soak up the event with and chat with on the pavement outside the cinema in the cold afterwards. Mm-hmm. So it's hard to talk about it now with a great deal of enthusiasm. We did see a film, which mm-hmm. we'll talk about, but this month I think Auckland's second lockdown has hit us both pretty hard. I, I know I've personally struggled with cabin fever a bit of work frustrations, and just the general unease of living through these times. Sometimes it's hard to even identify why you're feeling the way you're feeling, but we both felt it and talked about it together, which I think has really helped and I appreciate it. Mm. So acknowledging this, we've decided to both revisit films that make us feel good, the cinematic happy places we might go to when times are tough. I think we've all got those films. Maybe we know them inside out. Maybe we have frames from them seared into our own memories. But those are the movies we need for times like these. But before we get to that... Before we get into the cinema to chase away the sad face, shall we have a brief chat about the film we both watched from the festival? Yeah. Hmm. Cool, yeah. We watched um, Jesus Shows You the Way to the Highway. It's a Portuguese and Ethiopian co-production. Is that right? Sure. Yeah. Um, do you want to hear me butch some words? Some yeah, names? yeah, I'd love to. So starring Daniel Tadis, Jalamo Lanzo, Augustin Matteo, and Gerda Annette Alacas. Oh, well done. Written and directed by Miguel Lan- Lanzo. That's not too bad. Yeah, I like how I just said, well done. Like, I had any idea whether that was right or wrong. <laughs> it's, it's, I think, as we've said this before, it's all about going with gusto yeah. and confidence. Yeah, it's all the conviction in it. All right, so uh, for a plot, here goes. 
Two CIA agents, Gagana and Palmer, are sent into a kind of virtual reality sleep world called Psychobook to combat a computer virus known as the Soviet Union. <laughs> the Soviet Union wants to use the agents to peddle a green goo called the substance. And to that end, they trap Gagano in Psychobook. Gagano simply wants to escape and set up a pizza restaurant or perhaps help his wife with a dream of starting a kickboxing academy. But first he must escape the president of Ethiopia, known as Batfro, because of his Batman costume, obviously. Fly, fly monsters and the wonderfully named Mr. Sophistication. <laughs> perhaps Jesus will help him. Um, look, I might have got all of that wrong, by the way. Yeah. But I feel like that's as good a synopsis yeah. as I can manage. I think so, yeah. Yeah, Michelle Gondry aesthetic is the first thing that leaps to mind, isn't right. it? Right. You know, it's that kind of archaic computer technology. Uh, look, loading up with uh, Spectrum 48K kind of mm. thing is a surefire way to get me on side with your bizarre world. Uh, I mean, I lived in that bizarre world for a couple of years back in the 80s. So, yeah, and I kind of thought for the film's madness, it actually has a surprising coherence. Mm. Like initially I thought this is going to be pretty wild, uh, and visually it is. Mm. Uh, but plot-wise, I thought it was relatively straightforward. Uh, with a cleverly simple way of signifying the separate worlds it occupies by having the lead characters wearing cutout masks of Richard Pryor and Robert Redford mm. when they're like avatars in the virtual computer world. Yeah. So that was kind of interesting. Mm. Uh, it has a cocaine-fueled Batman kicking enemy ass in front of a waterfall with water so dirty I had to strain mm. to discover whether it was a waterfall or a mudslide. <laughs> like I was like... <laughs> What is that? Yeah. <laughs> look, look like Augustus Gloop, you know, like the chocolate. And cho yeah, yeah, cho that's yeah. how thick it was. It was yeah. like, oh, it was, it was pretty amazing. So there's some kind of like real bizarre visuals that yeah, stuck yeah. with me for a long time. The reason I picked this one, I think, because uh, we talked about films we could watch mm. and I was determined to watch this one, uh, was the trailer. I mean, I was really sucked in by the, the graphics, like you say, the um, mm. Commodore 64 or even earlier Spectrum mm. uh, graphics and the real people and stop motion technique in the trailer, which I thought was Great, but I can't say I love Jesus shows you the way to the highway. It's like a Gonzo Stoner inception with no budget, which surely is an appealing pitch in a lot of ways. Um, and I appreciate the references: kung fu, eighties nostalgia, giant death ray bugs. There's a lot here that sounds fun. I just didn't have the enormous amount of fun watching it. I think. Yeah. Visually, like the stop motion uh, movements of characters, the weird glitchy effects on Batfro's bat symbol. Mm. Uh, that's the sort of stuff I'm here for, and and did really enjoy. There's some things that will stick in my mind from watching this. There's like, uh, I don't make deals with computer viruses. Maybe mm. my favourite line from a film in 2020. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty good. <laughs> like they just have these bizarre non sequiturs that will, you know, stick in your mind. And then it has like a self-styled messiah feeding green jelly into a TV set while a SWAT team led by Batman in a gas mask ex executes religious followers. Like yeah. just writing that sentence out is that's the world you're entering into. Yeah. Um, but I, I actually found that the dare I say the emotional journey of the lead character was quite I kind of wanted him to get back to reality you know mm. he seemed like he wanted a simple mm. life and he wanted you know uh, the relationship that he had with his, yeah, his yeah. partner and yeah and you just kind of wanted him to get back there and so I was kind of invested I was surprised at how invested I was right. in him wanting him to get back to that world you know because everyone kept telling him that he was dead essentially yeah, yeah 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 look to be fair I may have enjoyed this a whole lot more with an audience not streaming Home Alone, you know. Mm. Films like uh, Jesus Chose the Way to the High Base seem built for communal viewing. Uh, without others laughing and WTFing alongside you, a decent percentage of that enjoyment is gone, I think. Yeah. Uh, I will say it's 81 minutes long. So 
a very easy watch and I think if the viewing circumstances were different, if I wasn't watching this at home feeling grumpy about the fact I'm not watching it at a film festival, I may have taken more from the experience. And I mean, if, if any of what we've said sounds like your bag, you know, to lie back and let the experience wash over you, enjoy the trauma-esque developments and soak up the 8-bit aesthetic, you know, this is probably for you. Yeah, that's right. Uh, yeah, it's it's a bit tough to recommend it wholeheartedly, but I agree with you and I, I think 100% because if, if you do get an opportunity to see this at a film festival with an audience, I think you would probably enjoy it a, a whole lot a whole lot mm, more yeah, for sure. than yeah, to just sitting sitting back by yourself watching it on a download screen. Yeah, on your laptop in bed. <laughs> yeah. <sighs> I breathed deep and every bit of me inside myself said, how beautiful. It's not beautiful. You read my thoughts, Mr. Holland. Easy enough to read the thoughts of a newcomer. Everything seems beautiful because you don't understand. Those flying fish, they're not leaping for joy. They're jumping in terror. Bigger fish want to eat them. That luminous water, it takes its gleam from millions of tiny dead bodies. The glitter of putrescence. There's no beauty here, only death and decay. Okay, so now it's time to go to our happy places by diving into the films that make us feel good when times aren't so good. So, uh, Duncan, what's your happy place film here? Well, there, uh, you know, once we come up with this topic, I was just thinking about it, and there are many films that are my happy place that I can talk about, like virtually anything in the David Lynch or the Hitchcock, Coen Brothers, or even Marx Brothers filmography. Mm. I've spoken about films that mean a lot to me before on this podcast. The Thing, Remains of the Day anything from the original Indiana Jones or Star Wars trilogies. But there is a series dear to my heart that I haven't really delved into on this podcast before, but we have spoken about at the beginning of this podcast, James Bond. And while I have enough to espouse on for like 20 podcasts, there's just one I went back to when we were discussing our cinematic happy places, and that is From Russia With Love. Uh, released in 1963, it was the second 007 adventure and the last before the series turned into a global phenomenon the following year with Goldfinger. And From Russia With Love is, is about as legit a spy thriller as the series gets. Uh, Bond is lured to Istanbul, theoretically neutral in the Cold War. It acts as this really exotic backdrop for espionage. A clerk at the Russian embassy says she will defect with a decoding machine uh, if Bond is the one to help her. It is a carefully orchestrated trap by Spectre, uh, a rogue terrorist organisation led by the faceless Blofeld, and they are playing both the British and the Russians off against each other, starting turf wars and retributions throughout the streets of Istanbul. And while Bond keeps focus on getting the decoder and one eye on his contact, Tatiana Romanova, in the background is a shadowy figure of Spectre's elite assassin, Red Grant. Needless to say, this is my cinematic, one of my many cinematic happy yeah. places. Uh, From Russia With Love is my favourite Bond film, uh, which is, says quite a lot. There's probably about... No, at least six that I think are just really exceptional mm. in Bond films. Uh, there's probably six that I think are pretty bad as well, but yeah, I enjoy yeah. them nonetheless. But yeah, this is definitely my favourite. Um, this is directed by Terence Young, uh, a man who gave Bond his swagger, literally. Mm. He taught Sean Connery how to walk. Really? Yeah, he said, no, 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 you need to do it like this. Uh, like a panther in Savile uh. Row suits. He gave him the suits from Savile Row and told him to sleep in them to get used to them. Right. You know, because Sean Connery actually, you know, he, he was a... Uh, like a, a bodybuilder yeah, milk, yeah, yeah. milkman yeah. from Glasgow, you know what I mean? Like mm. he's not, he's not James Bond. Man, um, Man it, that kid from Bronx Warriors needed this guy around, <laughs> eh? <laughs> For sure. 
Ed Terrence Young, the director, would have like champagne on the set. And when he was um, on a helicopter shooting part of this film, it fell from the sky, landing in a lake. Oh. And he saved the camera and then went right back to filming just like an hour later. Yeah. And uh, Terrence Young is responsible for three Bond films. The first, Dr. No, the second, From Rush With Love, and the fourth, Thunderball. And the way he directs Connery is especially unique. There's like a deadpan, lethal quality to the humour. And Bond is far more of a determined character than he is mm. in other ones. And all you need to do is really look at Goldfinger, which is in between the Terence Young ones, and see how different Connery plays it. It's actually quite subtle, but you can notice it. Mm. As you said at the beginning, we were talking about you know what you love about Bond films, mm. and one of them is the villains, and I'm a big... You know, it's a big tick for me yeah. is the villains. And the villains here are entertainingly evil. Rosa Klebb, like the crab-faced Russian colonel who is secretly defected to Spectre. Mm. Kronstein, the grandmaster chess player who orchestrates the devious plan. And controversially for me, my favourite interpretation of Bond's greatest nemesis, Ernst Stavro Blofeld, is this one. He's faceless, mm. uh, petting his cat, feeding it small fighting fish he's just used in an analogy comparing the fish to clueless British and Soviet intelligence agencies while Spectre is clearly the cat devouring the winner uh, but as much as these roles are well cast and well written there is a favourite henchman who has never been topped in my humble opinion and that's Red Grant and From Rush With Love also introduced what has become known as the pre-title sequence mm. so there wasn't one in Doctor No but this is the first one right that actually had a pre-title sequence and then moved into the titles. Right. Uh, a cold open that introduces a threat to our hero. And the threats don't come much better than Red Grant, a silent blonde killer who stalks Bond for two-thirds of the film. Mm. And That's a great pre-credit um, sequence. It is, isn't yeah, it? That's yeah. great. And, yeah, it's, it's a really striking sequence. And Robert Shaw is among the finest actors to grace the series. Red Grant is not only the physical match of Bond, as we see in that mm. opening title sequence, uh, the pre-opening title sequence, but he's the professional equivalent as well. A methodical, cunning, and in some ways chameleonic killer. The film shows us in training and in real-world experience how lethal he is, even before he gets to Bond. Mm. And all the while, he is both protecting and setting Bond up, drawing him into the centre of the spider's web until he has him exactly where he wants him. And that's kind of actually once Bond's done all the hard work, like mm. stealing the decoding machine for him and outwitting the Russians. Bond thinks he's safely escaped on the world's famous Orient Express, but really he's just stepped into that final trap. Mm. Yeah. That um, that pre that pre opening credits uh, sequence. What gets me is uh, so like we've been watching these films obviously, and mm. we've watched this one, uh, but not it wasn't the first one to be watched. So we're kind of used to the idea of yeah. the, of that pre opening uh, credit sequence. And this one seems to work against the ones we've seen. Right. Do you know what I mean? Because Bond's not really in it. Yeah. And he's not the hero of it and he doesn't sure. drive it and actually it's got a shocking end to it. So it almost feels like I'm surprised that it's the first one to come out because almost immediately it's messing with your expectations. Yeah, that's right. And um, so watching it out of order, it's like it feels like quite a shock and quite a novel thing to do. So it shocks me that it's the first because um, we haven't got round to uh, Dr. No yet. So yeah. You know, we haven't done those uh, first two. So, right. yeah, that's quite shocking to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is. I and mean, very cool. It is very cool. And they just kind of kept it going. And um, that actually speaks to the terrific editing that's in this film, which I'll get to later. There's this terrific wordless sequence where Bond is waiting for his contact on this train platform. Mm. And in the background, still on the train. And you can almost kind of miss it if you don't, you know, if you haven't seen it. 50 times like I have, uh, you can see Red Grant following his movements. So right. he's kind of going 
So you're focusing on Connery walking, but you can see the shadowy figure in, in the mm. train still moving, following him you know, from window to window. Then at the next stop, Grant finds Bond's contact before him, steals his belongings, um, theoretically mm. killing him, and then poses as the contact for Bond. And this is the first time we hear him speak, and it's about, I don't know, maybe over an hour, maybe yeah. an hour or 20 yeah. into the film. And he's not a thug, and he doesn't have like a Russian voice. Mm. He's has this posh clipped English tone mm. that really belies the extreme violence he's capable yeah, yeah, of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's quite amazing. I remember the first time I saw that, just going, whoa, I did not expect him to be talking like that. Yeah. He's kind of this kind of posh, naff kind of company man. Yeah. Uh, really, again, it, it, it throws you. And I, I really like, I like to think that Robert Shaw and probably Terence Young mm. made that decision of like, we're going to play yeah, him this way. That's a great decision. Yeah, because it's quite different in the book. I know from the novels, a little mm. bit different. And when he outsmarts Bond, he proceeds to taunt him, displaying two weaknesses that Bond capitalizes on, pride and greed. Mm. And Bond uses the briefcase given to him by Q Branch, mm. you know, t- uh, to extract himself from this deadly situation. The briefcase exploding gas that allows Bond to attack his enemy and thus ensues one of the most celebrated sequences in any Bond film, The Fight on the Orient Express. Uh, a small two-bedroom train cabin becomes a cage match fight for mm. the two spies. Bathed in blue and shadows, the two men brutally come to blows. It's absent of any music as well. Yeah. And apparently Connery and Shaw are in every shot, uh, bar right. one, that the stuntmen did. So they're actually these two yeah, actors. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, are doing it. Yeah, and then they're both big guys, you know, yeah. both physical guys. Yeah. And especially Connery, it made me think, um, it kind of <laughs> for much with love in some ways, that sequence kind of, sometimes annoys me a little bit with later Bond fights that they're not as good as that. Yeah. It's like, you man, you broke the mold, you should be doing this, and then some of the other ones aren't quite as good as that, Yeah, you know, which is kind of a little bit disappointing. This couple of, there's all right, one in Goldfinger and stuff, but it took them a few time, yeah. few guys to get going. And uh, needless to say, Bond gets the upper hand using the villain's garrote wire that was introduced in the opening scene against him, hoist mm. by his own petard, which is always a satisfying way to yeah. go out, right? Yeah. Especially... In these early Bond films, something they replicate actually quite brilliantly with Oddjob and Goldfinger, you know, that hoist by their own petard kind of thing. Uh, Pedro Armadarias as Kieran Bay. Mm. Uh, as, he's like a real beacon of warmth in this film. Mm. I really like him. as uh, He's kind of the archetypal Bond ally. He shows Bond the ropes in Istanbul. Yeah. He's the kind of character who almost single-handedly represents the best and unique charms of the city. Yeah. You almost don't feel like you necessarily need to get to walk in the streets of Istanbul. It's like this guy is yeah. kind of Istanbul, even though... The actor's not like yeah, he's Mexican, yeah. <laughs> so um, uh, and a th- bit of a sad story here. But the actor Armadares was dying of cancer at the time. Oh no! Yeah, um, and he was unable to kind of to cope between takes. And as soon as the cameras rolled, he was just like ignited into life. Yeah, yeah. They shot all of his scenes first to allow him to seek treatment uh, to no avail. Instead, he chose to end his own life. Oh no! Yeah, in a sanitarium in uh, in the states. Oh wow. Yeah, but he really wanted to do the role, and he, yeah. he told Terence Young, and you know, I want to leave money to my yeah. family, and so they did this. Yeah. And um, wow. yeah, he's he's so great. And there's there's a part where he disappears from the film, and you feel it's such a brilliant moment. The more I watch it, I actually go, he's been this character of warmth ever since yeah. he's turned up, and then he disappears, and that's the point where Robert Shaw decides to kind of reveal himself, right? And it's kind of all of this protection and this warmth, not just protection, yeah, yeah, his, his ally, but the kind of character of warmth has disappeared and he's kind of bonds with Tatiana who's not sure whether he can actually trust and he doesn't really have anyone uh, yeah. yeah and also the train sequences remind me a lot of North by Northwest as well yeah. 
which I think is interesting. Um, I, I like the stuff with him and Tatiana because you're talking about he's not sure he can trust her. Yeah. But surely she's not sure she can trust him as well. Yeah. And, and I think as a viewer, uh, like I'm not sure I like him in patches of this film. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. In a way that uh, doesn't happen a lot for me when I watch these Bond films. Generally yeah. he's like uh, either I might not like him in patches and because it's dated badly what's going yeah. on. Sure. Or, I, or, um, or I generally just, uh, you know, Mostly with the more ones, I'm just like, yeah, oh, he's fun, he's cool, he's whatever. <laughs> but in this one, like, he's generally he's kind of nasty and brutish there in a way that yeah. makes me to think, oh, this is our guy. Yeah, that's you know? right, and that, that's a good thing, I think, that we should feel on edge. Yeah, that's right, and I think that um, this is something that again, I go back to Terence Young doing that. Um, that he doesn't, he kind of doesn't try to um, blunt those edges at mm. all. Uh, it happens in Doctor No. Doctor No. Straight out of the gate, obviously, but Bond's really ruthless in that film. Mm. Like he's a real ruthless, cold killer, and he's pretty bad towards everyone who, mm. who remotely poses a threat, um, you know, real or imagined. Yeah, uh, and it's the same here, and a little bit in Thunderball. Um, but yeah, I, I kind of I agree. It's you're not you're not quite sure, and that's uh, there's definitely some <laughs> things in this that haven't dated well, like the gypsy fight with the uh, the, oh, the woman sure. fighting um, is not. To say it's not politically correct is a pretty massive understatement. Um, Dude, I've seen worse. <laughs> yeah, that's right. You've seen worse in the series, probably. Yeah, yeah. exactly. I, I feel I have. Um, so what is it that is comforting to me about this film? I did think about that you know, yeah. when we were talking about it. And like I say, there's, there's plenty of films I find comforting. But what is it about this one? And I think it's the romance of the time period. Mm. Uh, that Cold War tinge when spies were at the cutting edge of technology. Mm. Uh, when air travel was still for the elite, when the East was still a mystery wrapped in an enigma inside a riddle, mm. uh, when dimly lit cobblestone streets were the stage for midnight meetings of dapper agents speaking in passwords. Um, it's all those great elements of the 60s without all the horrible realities of, <laughs> mm. of the 60s. But even though it was released in 1963, I feel this film in some ways is the last hurrah of the 50s. Mm. It feels like a little bit of a 50, late 50s film. Right. Um, Bond is not yet swinging 60s Bond He's debonair, aloof, but focused uh, He's really engaged in proceedings Not yet the Superman he would become He's fallible, sometimes short-sighted uh, But he's also quick-thinking and inventive The film has a deliberate pace that I find really pleasing yeah. I really enjoy those moments at the beginning When Tatiana's walking through the streets Just simple things like the music of John Barry's music when Tatiana's walking through the streets trying to find this place where she's supposed to meet mm. Rosa Klebb. And I, I don't know, that always sticks in my mind. Um, it takes his time, and Red Grant's even stalking her that mm. early on before Bond's even on the scene. And a Bond is off screen for nearly 20 minutes at the beginning of this film. Right. And it's, as you hinted at, like the beginning cold open, mm. it subverts your expectations. And it's just a staggering amount of time for what was the first sequel of the series. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. Like to take your lead character out. But this allows us to see the Spectre plot unfold to show us who he is up against and what they will gain from luring the British agent into the trap. They don't show us how they'll do it. Mm. That's something we discover with Bond. And this entire opening 20 minutes was restructured in the editing room. Really? Yeah. Mm. So uh, Peter Hunt, the editor, uh, who would later go on to direct on Her Majesty's Secret Service, he does a phenomenal job of saving this in the edit. He adds mystery and intrigue by altering the order of the scenes as they were intended. 
He even does some simple tricks like reversing footage and in one case using alternate takes of the same scene to expand the scope of the Spectre camp. So there's a part where they walk in and they see everything and then he actually cut to a shot behind it. It's actually the same set, but it feels like mm. you're looking right. further away. But right. actually, if you look, you're actually looking at the same thing. It's actually a really hard thing to explain. But when you see it, and I was like, I had no idea until I saw the making of documentary. Yeah, yeah. So there's some brilliant, subtle things that he does. And of course, he did a lot to do with the fight, you know, how he edited mm. that. And a big part of the Bond magic is John Barry's music. And here he gets to score a whole Bond film for the first time. A lot of controversy about who wrote the James Bond theme. Right. Uh, a lot of controversy. But the original Dr. No was done by this guy, Monty Norman, who only ever did that. Uh, he wrote the Bond theme, but John Barry arranged the Bond theme. Right. And so a lot of people kind of, they even had a court case over it and all kinds of stuff. It's, it's quite fascinating. Wild. Yeah, there's a there's a podcast I listened to uh, called James Bond Radio, and they had this guy um, Warren Ringham who um, actually has a uh, called Cue the Music, and he, they do all the you know has a big big band that do all the mm. stuff, and he did this like three hour podcast breaking down like kind of note by note and going through this court case, and it was one of the most fascinating podcasts I've listened to. It sounds boring, but it's actually really interesting. Mm. But the instrumental version of the theme for from Rush with Love, that blast across the opening title announces that Bond is back, blaring horns, shimmying piano, strident strings. It's an exciting piece of music. It adds urgency and romantic moments, segueing into the Bond theme at one point and then back out with those commanding horn blasts and thundering drums. He also gives one of the most majestic tunes, 007 theme. This isn't to be confused with the James Bond theme. This is called the 007 theme. And um, it's kind of a blustering... Sil- celebration tune usually played when bond is just like owning his opposition yeah he's never really in trouble in these but the kind of high action sequences he's just being pretty awesome in those moments here it's used a couple of times i think it's used during the gypsy camp fight uh when the russian spies launch a lethal attack on the friendly gypsies and bond just wanders around the battlefield blasting enemies to the sound of his own theme tune um <laughs> but it's also there where he goes in and gets the lector dakota when it blows up yeah and um he goes in and grabs it so for me, From Russia with Love is that perfect Bond film. Uh, it doesn't just take all the elements I love about the series. It pioneers a few of them, as we've said. Mm. Um, the editing had an influence on the genre. The monologuing villain wasn't the cliche it is now. Uh, it has that prototypical gadget, the booby-trapped briefcase, mm. which is actually in the novels, the only gadget that's from the novels. Because right. gadgets weren't a thing. This was the thing that kind of introduced gadgets. Yeah into the Bond thing, and then they just went bananas with it in the yeah, series. Yeah. But actually, this is in the novel, um, and it's filled with sniper rifles, gas, gold sovereigns, throwing knives, mm. and you, uses them all of them to satisfying effect. It also has Bond spying, as you said. Yeah. Collaborating with... Always something I enjoy. Yeah, it's great. Uh, again, uh, on some of the other Bond podcasts, they talk about Sneaky Bond, mm. how people love Sneaky Bond, and that's that. You know, you can get the Sneaky Bond music in there and stuff, and when he's actually doing spy work, which surprisingly becomes less and less during the yeah. series. Yeah, no, some no, of the Roger Moore's, he's just, well, literally, you know, gondolering through yeah, St. No. Mark's Square is not a lot of um, spying in that just one. Showing up and sleeping with the right people. Yeah, that's right. Oh, look at this. I found a secret compartment. He's collaborating with contacts like Karen Bay and getting mixed up in local politics and like long-standing grudges. I like how that kind of kind of mayhem is is instigated by Spectre as almost a distraction mm. to what the real plot is going on. It has romance, seduction, and one of my favorite parts of all is that the British from the beginning suspect it is a trap. Mm. But they can't resist the lure or the challenge. Yeah. I love that. They're yeah. just like, yeah, it probably is a trap, but 
hey, it's worth it, right? Like, what are you going to do? This is what we we get paid to do. And I like that kind of bravado of like, yeah, cool. Let's see what happens. And remarkably, it's labyrinthian plot is actually not only easy to follow, but really entertaining to follow. It's good to see it kind of come to fruition, this plan. And the characters creating the trap are just as likely to kill each other as they are Bond. Yeah. In some cases, they do. Yeah. Um, But it's that Red Grant versus Bond face-off that excites me every time I watch it. Like, I, you know, I like Mm. get tense when it's about to come up. And From Rush With Love is my favorite Bond and will never not be. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. I, yeah, I can imagine that. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, and I think I think there's a lot to be said for it. The longer the series goes on, there's a lot to be said for that being in there. If, if you just kind of started off with Goldfinger and you didn't have From Rush With Love, then the series would probably be something different. Yeah, it's an interesting one um, because – I'm one of the one of those pe- and look, I'll watch it again, so maybe I'll feel differently. But I'm one of those people who's not a massive fan of um, Goldfinger. Mm. Like uh, it's gimmicky, and and I get that there's some cool iconic stuff, but mm. I feel like he does very little in that film to drive what's going on. Yeah, it's been yeah. a while since I watched it, so maybe yeah. I'll feel differently. But that was my take out at the time. Yeah, well, and you weren't the only one. Connery uh, was very famously. There's oh. even notes from the time. Really? Yeah, saying, what am I doing? Like, what's my character doing in this? Yeah. So he was even writing stuff back, like, when you read the script, essentially. Yeah, um, yeah and that's very true. That yeah. that, that happens. Uh, in, in, but Goldfinger is one of those ones where it's, because it has all these iconic moments, people yeah. forget. Um, but I think From Rush With Love, being in there kind of legitimizes Bond as a spy thriller. Like, what I mean is Dr. No and From Rush With Love, I'm happy those two exist because it... It started from a place of, yeah, it's kind of campy and a bit silly, but it wasn't Goldfinger onwards. You know, mm. you know, you only live twice. You need to build up to those things and then bring it back down to earth. And I like that you can you can always, if you're in a silly mood, you can go for, you know, Moonraker or yeah. whatever. Um, and if you're in a kind of serious, legit mood, you can go for this. Mm. And, uh, yeah, I just find it really pleasing. And as we, we and I have spoken about how technology – it's a big problem in the latest Bond films, but just generally in, in mm. espionage films now, everything's like internets and how do you make the internets yeah. fascinating? And yeah. you know, you always have someone in someone's ear, you know, like with yeah. GPS and with you know drones and tracking and all mm. this kind of stuff. And it's kind of it's kind of good to have this, you know, <laughs> just him walking around a room while the Bond theme's playing, just trying to detect, um, yeah. you know, uh, yeah. recording Bikes. devices yeah, and yeah. stuff, which is just hilarious. Yeah. And so, what's your happy place, Simon? Well, it is. I've decided I walked with a zombie. Now, like you, this isn't maybe my only happy place. I've got a lot of cinematic happy places. Um, you know, I think one of the first things in the first lockdown I watched was Rogue One. Yeah. Uh, love those battles. <laughs> love those battles. If you put on a Lord of the Ring in front of me, I will just, you'll lose me for three hours. Nice. Easy. Yeah. Uh, you put on a Hobbit film in front of me, I'll leave the room. <laughs> I don't, but, but. Uh, for some reason, those Lord of the Rings films work on me, um, and and there's a lot of other classic films. Um, Evil Dead Two, I could watch that film countless times. Mm. I have watched Raiders of the Lost Ark countless times. Yeah, um, but I really felt nerd to watch. I walk with a zombie over the break, mm. uh, over this um, lockdown. So look, uh, I walk with a zombie from 1943, starring Francis D, Tom Conway, James Allison, Edith Barrett, Sir Lancelot, and the iconic Darby Jones, written by. Kurt Seardmack and Adel Ray and directed by Jacques Tourneur and of course produced by Val Luton which is pretty important uh, young nurse Bet- Betsy comes to the West Indies to care for Jessica the wife of a plantation manager Paul Holland Jessica seems to be suffering from a kind of mental paralysis as a result of a fever 
When she falls in love with Paul, Betsy determines to cure Jessica, even if she needs to use a voodoo ceremony to give Paul what she, what she thinks he wants. So look, this is a horror classic, or just a classic, whatever. It's maybe in my top ten of films that I can put on at any time and just sink into without hesitation. And there's a heap of reasons for that, so I think I'll talk about those. First up, it's just such a good-looking film. Mm. Uh, it's shot on the RKO backlog, but you never know it by the way director Turner conjures up airy moonlight walks through the sugar canes or shadows and suggestion. Uh, there are images that are seared into my mind. The first arrival of the statuesque Carrefour, maybe more than any other. In fact, that's probably the iconic image of the film. The unblinking shirtless zombie played by the unique Darby Jones. An actor I've only seen in one other film, by the way. Uh, the appalling Zombies on Broadway, <laughs> which is also an RKO film, made a few years later, where he plays essentially a parody of this character. Uh, so I have no idea what he would look like if he wasn't a zombie. Mm. Like, for me, he's always this this presence, you yeah. know? Uh, it's, a, it's a haunting moment in horror cinema. And there's this beautiful image as well that I, uh, I'm drawn to every time um, of fishermen spearing fish at night uh, in a shallow waters. Uh, a delicious looking shot that's broken by the macabre discovery of a body floating in the cool waters. Mm. One of the last images in the film. And it's, uh, it's just so gorgeous. Mm. Uh, likewise, I'm obsessed with Christine Gordon's Jessica, who gives uh, Betsy the film's only scream, emerging from the darkness unexpectedly in the shadow haunted tower of the Holland property. Like Darby, I know nothing about her. All her other appearances are uncredited woman, uh, model, or more tantalizingly, parachutist <laughs> in 1943's Mission to Moscow, not part of the Police Academy franchise, by the way. Uh. Disappointing. She's elegant and doe-like in a flowing nightdress. Her cheekbones and eyebrows arched on porcelain skin. She's maybe beautiful, but definitely absolutely haunting and unforgettable looking. Uh, there's never a hint of emotional reaction on her face. Most remarkably, when a voodoo master plunges a sword through her, through her arm at a nighttime ceremony. And then, there's, and then there's a story which isn't really a horror as much as its lurid title and marketing um, would try to convince you. I love that nothing and no one is easy to characterise. Is Paul, like, is he a cruel man? Uh, does he play games with people's feelings the way the alcoholic Wes accuses him of? Does he want his wife back? Is Wes uh, a drunken playboy or a man haunted by the loss of his love? The men's own mother is a rational widow of a missionary who pretends to believe in voodoo to work with the superstitious islanders. Or does she really believe? Uh, and is Jessica truly a zombie or the tragic result of a disease that fried her mind? Of course, famously, it's a remake of uh, Jane Eyre, a kind of pride and prejudices and zombies long before that idea ever, ever occurred to anyone. And I love the build of the film, too, the way the nighttime drums become more frequent, mm. uh, more insistent as the voodoo master tries to draw Jessica back. And it feels like we're almost always hearing those drums by the end of the film, you know? Mm. Um, there's one other scene that gets me every time, and that's when Betsy goes into the town on a day off and meets up with the hard-drinking Wes. A calypso singer starts singing a song about the dark past of the Holland family. And then apologises once he realises realizes that one of the Holland boys is there. But later, once night has fallen and Wes has collapsed from his drink and Betsy is alone, the singer returns, walking towards her, playing the rest of the song that now includes a verse about her. I mean, it's such a great, weird, eerie moment, isn't it? Mm. You know? Like, I don't know whether he's warning her or deliberately scaring her. Mm. Like, is he being cruel, you know? Yeah. So, look, that's the film. But I love it and can return to it so often because of the life... I Walked With the Zombie has taken on outside of the act of watching it as well. Because I really dig classic films and film history, and there's so many great stories uh, that spider we about from this film. I mean, in the same way that, you know, 
the stories that you can tell me about Bond films as well. Mm. When you're immersed in that, there's an extra life that these films take on yeah. that becomes part of the joy of revisiting them. Um, there's the fact that this film's existence in the first place that producer Val Luton, an RKO wonder kid who perhaps conceived of the fantastic pullout to reveal the wounded of the Battle of Atlanta uh, from um, Gone with the Wind, was given his own horror B studio. As long as he kept budget and made films with uh, films to the crazy titles he's given, like The Cat People, The Body Snatchers, The Leopard Man, and of course The Curse of the Cat People, which he apparently hated, um, and the poster for which hangs on my wall because I loved it. <laughs> All of which became horror classics of shadow and suggestion. Uh, there's the cast stories. I've talked before about Tom Conway, I know, who plays Paul Con. Who plays Paul Conway was also known as the nice George Sanders in reference to the fact that he followed his brother to Hollywood, picking up his discarded roles in the in the Falcon serial and starring in a bunch of RKO horrors before drinking himself to death. Uh. But widely regarded as a much nicer guy than uh, George Sanders, who was a heel. Yeah. Yeah. Um. I spoke about the man who sings the ballad of the Holland family, Shame and Scandal, uh, a great piece of music conceived for this film that would be reimagined and re-recorded down through the decades, being performed by everyone from Johnny Cash to Madness. Uh, Sir Lancelot would pop up again in Curse of the Cat People and lived to 98, passing away in 2001. I appreciate also that Luton treated the actors of colour better in his films than was common for the time. Uh, the black characters here are sympathetic, smart, caring, and Betsy treats him as friends, cooing over a newborn and helping one of them with a horse. A scene I love once you realise that the woman was probably only pretending to have trouble with the horse in the first place, mm. so that she could uh, listen in on a conversation. It's a small thing, perhaps, but it's clear that Luton and Tunier cared because they also created memorable and interesting black characters in the other films they collaborated on. Mm. Um, and look, lastly, lastly, like all of the RKO horrors, I walk with the zombie clocks in at a pinch under 70 minutes. Uh, meaning you can soak in this sweet, intoxicating, lovely, eerie walk in the voodoo night, the distant drums beating, Carrefour guiding you in the company of the ethereal Jessica, and still be done in just a tickle over an hour. So why wouldn't you? Yeah, uh, yeah, this is this is a great film. Uh, I I was aware of it. I hadn't ever watched it, though. Oh, really? Yeah, so um, I've seen Jacques Tournier's other some of his other stuff, Cat People, and uh, what was the other one I've seen? Uh, night of the Demon? Yeah, Night of the Demon. And um, and but I hadn't seen this one, and this is on uh, YouTube, right? And, uh, and was pretty, it good? Yeah, it was good. It was good. Um, my, yeah, it was really good. And um, well, we'll link to that. Yeah, yeah, mm. we'll, we'll link to that. Uh, there's a lot on there actually. It actually took me down a YouTube hole, a very uh, pleasant YouTube hole yeah. of not just Jacques Tourneur or, or RKO stuff, but just a whole bunch of good quality black and white um, mm. '40s films, '30s films as mm. well. And and I agree with you. Not only the um, the black actors, mm. black characters, especially for the time, like by oh, nowadays standards, you know, yeah, it's but nothing. For, but for the, for the middle of the forties, oh, you know? for the middle of the forties, it was quite amazing to mm. be honest. But also the female characters are own this film, and the men are slightly to the side. So yeah. it's more about the 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 two leads, Betsy the nurse and Jessica. Yeah, you know, it's kind of their relationship, and mm. even the mother who comes into mm. it and has those has those moments with Betsy. And yeah, so yeah. those three particularly become the most interesting. And whereas particularly Wes starts off, it's interesting they kind of subvert Wes as it goes on because mm. you think when you see him, you're like, oh well, he's the the love interest. The love interest. Yeah, yeah he's going to he's kind of the traditionally good looking guy, but actually, yeah. like you say, he's quite broken and yeah. uh, and resentful 
and unable or unwilling to move on, mm. whereas to some degree Paul kind of has mm. is slightly in a healthier place, I think. Um, and yeah, I, I I found it really quite gripping, and there was a couple of moments. Um, there was uh, a good moment there, the bell tower, yeah. bell tower sequence, and I think my wife actually kind of got a got a oh, fright really? then, and I was like, oh, "That's um, this is a film from the forties, like yeah, good yeah. stuff, you know, like yeah. a genuine kind of." It was really effective, and and the way it was shot, like had those you know those film noir shadows, mm. but it had like you say that Jane Eyre, they almost kind of gothic mm. elements to it as well. Yeah. So, and also being in the Caribbean, unusual as well. And yeah. I guess I guess because Jacques Denier, French, right, slightly different viewpoint in the Caribbean than say like an American or a, even an English would. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, yeah, I I really enjoyed watching this. I mean, Luton was a Russian, you know. Yeah. Uh, so they both had very different sensibilities. Yeah. And so they only did two films together. So they did right. Uh, first film they did was Cat People, which of course yeah. massive hit mm. and really rewarded the faith Archeo had given in um, Val Luton. Mm. And then this one, and not as huge a hit, but a solid hit. Mm. And so after that, they split them up, figuring, well, if we've got these two guys making hits, yeah. we'll have, we'll split mm. them up and we'll have two guys over here making different hits all over the place, yeah. you know? And of course, I don't think it worked so much for Turnier, who didn't really have another hit for yeah. a while. And I mean, nowadays we regard um, Night of the Demon, which he did in the fifties, mm. as a, it's a bit of a hit. But yeah. um, you know, it was a long time. Yeah, you know, b- between really successful films. Yeah, it's a bit of a shame, isn't it? They're yeah. slightly sh- short-sighted from the. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess um, it just didn't work out the way they expected. But mm. Luton went on to make another um, seven great horror films. Mm. You know, as a producer. Um, yeah, what was the one we watched? You remember, was one of the, the spoiler alert challenges you gave me of Val Luton. Oh, um, uh, Sim Victim. Yeah, yeah Sim yeah. Victim, and I really so, liked that. Yeah, it was great. Yeah, fantastic. Sim, yeah, I mean, there was we, we did that probably about like five, six years ago. But if you haven't seen Victim, I, it's another one that you gave me, and I was like, yeah. it's really effective. And it, Tom Conway's in all of those films. Is he really? Yeah. Right. Yeah. In fact, I think, and um, it's been a while since I've seen. I think he plays the same character in the Seventh Victim right. as he plays in the Cat People, but that character dies in the Cat People. <laughs> right. So I think it's there's a weird, uh, you know, there's a weird uh, chronology going on there. Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, yeah, he's a, he was a regular. Right. Okay. Um, RKO films. Cool. Spoiler alert. Okay, so that was uh, episode eighty-eight, and um, thanks everyone for listening. Uh, what's the tune we're going out to, Simon? Well, it has to be "Shame and Scandal." Shame and Scandal. Yeah, and this is from um, "I Walk with a Zombie." Mm-hmm. Who's it by? Oh, it's written and uh, performed by Sir Lancelot. Sir Lancelot. I, I saw when his name came up on the credits, and I was like, "Man, look at this!" We've that's got the, a killer name. That's a great. I was like, "That's like a equivalent of a nineteen forties rapper," you know. Lancelot. Really interesting <laughs> dude too, because he, he his uh, parents wanted him to be a doctor, and he was actually training to be a doctor. Right. And then one day discovered like musicals and performing, and that was it. You wow. know. So he was he was the shame and scandal of the family, pretty much. <laughs> Uh, when he went off and became a, a musician. But it's amazing to me that this song, which is very specifically written to comment on the events of this film, mm. would become a hit that would be played down through the years. Yeah. Like I say, repurposed. I heard um, uh, Johnny Cash performing it, yeah. um, you know, like Madness covered. And obviously there were lyric changes to make it less specific. Yeah. But still, that's some legs, man. Yeah, that is. That's really impressive to come out of this as well. Yeah, to come out of this film, yeah. Yeah. It's amazing. Mm. Ah, awesome. Well, um, thanks everyone for listening, and we will uh, see you next month. All right, take care. Cheers.
first one won't kill you. Not the second. Not even the third. Not till you crawl over here and 